Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 50 this morning. I've entitled this, Unbelief, Secret Belief, and a Call to Belief. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from us. Uh, In the row in front of you, you'll see some Bibles scattered throughout those back seat pockets. You can grab one, and that's on page 845 this morning. John chapter 12. And verses 37 through 50, if you don't own your own Bible, we invite you to take that Bible as a gift from us. Uh, We want you to be able to have a copy of God's Word in your home and for you to be able to read. And so uh, please uh, take that as a gift if you don't own your own Bible. John chapter 12, this morning, most recently in our study of the Gospel of John, we have been looking at uh, the time that when Jesus makes his final public statements before instructing his men as he is headed to the cross. In fact, this morning we see his final public declaration of the gospel as John describes the belief or lack thereof of those with whom Jesus is interacting. If you're able to, would you please stand with me once again this morning as I read our New Testament scripture reading aloud. I'm reading from the ESV this morning, John chapter 12 Starting in verse 37, though he had done many, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and Understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You may be seated. That is the New Testament reading. This morning, I pray that it's been a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud, along with our Old Testament reading. Would you join me me once again in prayer? Lord, we believe that the scriptures that we have read were inspired by the the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John in the original autographs. We believe we have a representation of that in our text this morning. But just as your Spirit inspired these things in the original autographs, we now pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, also illuminate our hearts to an understanding and an application of that truth as we study it together this morning. I pray that you would get me out of the way, Lord. May the glory of the triune God only shine through. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to humble me as we go about this task this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once said, quote, Believing things on authority only means believing them because you have been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there is such a place as New York. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there is such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary person believes in the solar system, atoms in the circulation of blood on authority because the scientists say so. 
Every historical statement is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada. But we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. In fact, on authority. A person who balked at authority and other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. End quote. Let me just say that last part again from C.S. Lewis. A person who balked at authority and other things, as some people do in religion, would have to be content to know nothing all his life. Lewis aptly describes not only those who have not seen and therefore do not believe, though, as he says, this cannot be entirely true, or they would believe nothing at all. But also those who have undeniably seen things, as those who are in our text, who cannot deny the miracles of Jesus, but refuse to believe and even are hardened in their unbelief. However, we understand from Scripture, this is due to their nature as sinners. Just as it is true that all who are born are born in unbelief and sin, and that faith, therefore, is a gift. In fact, that last bit there kind of captures our main idea. If you happen to have the worship folder there in front of you, turn it over on the back. You see that printed there for you. If you're tuning in from home, this should have been emailed to you. The main idea is this. Unbelief is the status of all who are born in sin, which is every person ever born outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And gospel belief is a gift of God. I mean, this really simply breaks down the passage that we look at uh, together this morning. Belief is a gift. Faith is a gift of God. We are all born in unbelief. We are all born sinners who not only reject God, but we actually are His enemies and we hate Him. I want us to see this morning three perspectives of belief found in our text. Three perspectives of belief found in our text. The first is this. There is a fulfillment of prophecy concerning unbelief. So remember this morning, unbelief, secret belief, and a call to belief. There is a prophecy that is fulfilled here about unbelief. After Jesus beckons once again for those who are listening to him to walk in the light while he is still walking on the earth, he goes and hides himself from them. Look back at the, the, the last part of our study from last week, the end of verse 36, when Jesus had said these things about walking in the light while the light is still available, while he is still walking the earth, he departed and hid himself from them. <clears throat> and then John makes some comments on the scene which we observed last week in our text. That's really what we are looking at together this morning, is an observation that the Apostle John, some comments about this, even as he gives sort of Jesus' farewell statements here to the crowds before he leaves to be with his men alone. What's going on here? What's going on that John is commenting on? There is unbelief. This is what we saw in the main last week, a major scene of unbelief. And now John is commenting on this. Jesus is now about to turn his attention to his disciples and specifically his 12 men and perhaps a few others who have been following him. And in so doing, he is preparing them for his death. So he says his 
final word accented by what we see at the end of our passage today, which is really the, the final call of, of belief in the gospel, as we'll see. But John puts the emphasis here on what has just transpired, as we see in verse 37. Notice again, <coughs> excuse me, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Think of this in contrast to what John says and what we maintain is the point of John's gospel in John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. Listen to it. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Pause for a second there. John is saying, I have pointed out at least seven. That's the typical count of John's miracles that he puts forth. And he's saying, there's many more miracles that Jesus did which have not been written in this book. But these, the ones that I have highlighted, John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And here in contradistinction to that, I mean, it's almost written exactly in the opposite way that he writes John 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They have seen the miracles. They cannot deny them. They actually, however, do not love God. They are his enemies and they will not respond properly to Jesus as the one who represents the good news, the gospel. This is what John draws from in Isaiah in the following verses. Look at verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So in one sense, we can understand this unbelief as an unbelief that occurs because of prophetic fulfillment. So that the words of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus walks upon the earth, prophesies of the Messiah, prophesies of who would be known as Jesus when he is born into the world. And he prophesies very particularly in Isaiah, the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and in into chapter 53. And this is from Isaiah chapter 53. This is the first verse in that chapter. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The words fulfilled in this prophecy are twofold. As we think about the way in which the people who have been alive, the majority of Israel has responded to Jesus. We see Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1 fulfilled in two ways. First, the unbelief of what has been said. The unbelief of what has been proclaimed. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. The answer, mostly all of the Jewish nation has rejected Jesus. They have rejected not just him, but his words. Think about um, the, 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 the mosaic of the Gospels, uh, the four Gospels. Think about the way in which Matthew, Mark, and Luke write about the life of Jesus. And then think about the way in which John very uniquely writes about the way, uh, 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 the, the life of Jesus. 
in every instance, no matter what is being displayed by the gospel writer, whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we see rejection of Jesus' words. Uh, we, since we've been in the gospel of John, I'm thinking of things in the gospel of John where Jesus says things like, I have been sent from the Father, or I do the things that I see the Father doing. And, and what is the rejection? What is shown ultimately uh, as the rejection? Uh, sort of penultimately, uh, sort of secondarily ultimately, is what do they do? They want to pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. We see their reaction. We see their rejection. Ultimately, of course, this drives them to place him upon the cross, where they do indeed kill him according to God's plan. But we see the rejection of Jesus' words. And to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who is the arm of the Lord? Well, what is the arm of the Lord might be the first question we need to answer. It's uh, an illustration of His power. His power, the arm of the Lord. We know that God is spirit and He does not have a body. So when something like this is said, it's what we call an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism, something that attributes a human-like quality to a holy and and infinite God. And it speaks of His power. speaks of His power. And in what sense has the Lord's power been revealed in this context? It is through His eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Incarnation, coming to the earth, putting on flesh. Living a perfect life. And as John has pointed out, as John has been highlighting, the show of power in his miracles. Remember, the word miracle simply means that. It means a show of power. It is a sign. It's a signification pointing to who he is. This is the eternal son in his incarnation. A representation of the Lord's power. They are seeing in real time the activity of God before them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And and yet, though they cannot deny it, what do they say? This is not done by the power of God. This is done by the power of who? Satan. By the power of demons. They cannot deny it. So they attribute it to some other power and therefore show their unbelief. The first idea here is that their unbelief of what has been said and seen. They can't deny it. Secondly, as we think about the way in which this prophecy is fulfilled, they could not believe it. Not only did they not believe it, it says in verse 39, they could not believe it. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. They did not believe in Him, it says. In verse 37 and verse 39, it says they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, now uh, the, the Apostle John is drawing from Isaiah chapter 6, which was our Old Testament Scripture reading this morning. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What does this mean? At first glance, it seems unfair, does it not? It seems unfair that if they were to perceive, they would believe and I would heal them. 
does this mean? Well, let's finish John's thought and then we'll work through it because it does feel unfair. Notice John's comment on why Isaiah said this in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Again, this is taken from Isaiah's vision of the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. We heard this in our scripture reading this morning. Listen to how D.A. Carson in his commentary describes this. Quote, Isaiah, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. This may be no more than the conclusion of a chain of Christian reasoning. If the Son, the Word, was with God in the beginning and was God, and if He was God's agent of creation and the perfect revelation of God to humankind, then it stands to reason that in the Old Testament passages where God is said to reveal Himself rather spectacularly to someone, it must have been through the agency of His Son, His Word. However imperfectly the point was spelled out at that time. In other words, kind of commenting on... Carson's comment, he's saying it may not be fully understood as it is happening to Moses as he sees the burning bush. Oh, this must be the eternal Son of God. Or Isaiah as he sees the glory of the Lord and His robe filling the throne room. Oh, this must be the eternal Son of God. It must have been through the agency, Carson says, of his son, his word. However, imperfectly the point was spelled out at the time. Therefore, Isaiah said these words because he saw Jesus' glory. End quote from Carson. I agree with Carson and others. I believe that Isaiah saw the glory of the eternal son in the throne room of heaven And the great irony that I think John is drawing out here is that even those who have seen the eternal Son in their presence do not see Him. They cannot. John draws from Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees a vision of the glory of the Lord and and God tells him in Isaiah 6, Oh, by the way, no one is going to believe you. In fact, keep your finger in John chapter 12. And let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 6 and, and review what we heard this morning in our Scripture reading. Now remember, Isaiah is in the presence of the Lord. And what is his response to this? Oh, cool trick. Uh, that's pretty neat. The glory of God? Awesome. I must be pretty special for God to show me His glory. No. In the presence of a holy, triune God, He cries out, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Which the lips, Jesus said, lead directly to the heart. I cannot utter words in the presence of the holy God without sinning. What is the scene? There are seraphim with six wings, two covering their uh, face, two covering their feet, and flying with two, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The glory is not just seen in the throne room, but it is seen upon the earth. We would call that natural law. God makes His glory known through what He has made. Psalm 19. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What needs to happen in the presence of God is atonement. What, happen, what needs to happen in the presence of a, a triune, holy, a thrice holy God is sins need to be forgiven in order to stand in his presence. And Isaiah understands this. And he understands it not only of his own heart, he understands it of the heart of his people. And I says in verse 8, heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom, sh- whom, whom will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah now able to speak in the presence of God because his lips have been cleansed. Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, notice what it says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ear heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It's a devastating message. It is a message of the hardening of hearts, even as they hear of the glory of the Lord, even as Isaiah would proclaim the glory of the Lord to them. Then I said, how long, O Lord? In other words, this certainly can't be the end game here, God And he said, verse 11, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord Yahweh removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again and like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is, a, when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. In other words... Until the devastation is so great that the only one they see is the seed. This is seed theology. This is pointing toward a messianic hope. And essentially God is saying there must be a great rejection of Messiah and devastation because of that rejection until the time that there is a restoration. They cannot believe because their hearts are hard and they are truly the enemies of the Lord. Remember what Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of John? There are either children of God or children of the devil. And he calls them the children of the devil. Turning back over to John chapter 12, how then do we reconcile the unbelief and the hardening of the hearts. In other words, how do, we, how do we reconcile they did not believe and they could not believe? Well, first of all, both things are true. We must admit that. It's right here in the passage. They do not believe. At the same time, God keeps them from believing. They do not believe because they are born in sin. They... they, they, they 
also, however, cannot believe because they are born in sin. They both do not believe and cannot believe because they are born sinners. And then we think about how is it that God hardens their heart? Doesn't that seem unfair? Well, God hardens their hearts because God is God. Just as the sun by its nature hardens already hardened clay, so God, by the nature of who He is in His glory and in His holiness, hardens the already hard heart of the unbeliever. You see, our tendency is to think about humanity in a neutral sense. To say, well, everybody is uh, kind of in this neutral way and, and, and they either uh, choose God or, or choose their own way and, 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 and therefore it's unfair. It's not what the Scripture describes at all. The scripture tells us that the unrighteous are so unrighteous that they seek after greater unrighteousness in their unrighteousness. That there are none who seek after God, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, quoting from the Psalms. Their throats are open graves. They desire deceit and they desire destruction. They desire that they themselves would be worshipped above God. And the holiness of God is like the sun searing down upon the hard hearts of men that are already hard. And it hardens them more. That is how holy He is. And that is how wicked they are. So that even the Son of God is walking upon the earth and doing miracles before them. And they say, nah, we'd rather not. No, this must be by the power of demons that you do this. We refuse to believe what you say and what we see. And here, at this turning point in John's gospel, you can almost hear the grieving. They do not believe and they cannot believe. Believer, This morning to you I say, recognize the grace of God. You had nothing to do with your justification. Not even faith is yours, it is a gift. And the proper response to this is love and therefore worship of the triune God and love and therefore care for our neighbor's souls and needs. This is what Jesus says. We look to God and recognize that we are reconciled unto Him by His grace and mercy alone. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And we walked about living life as the living dead, if you will. Only doing what is in accord with the sons of disobedience because that is who we were. Only doing what is in accord with the prince of the power of the air because he was our father. And then Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together with him, with Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is a gift, not of yourself, lest any man should boast. Faith is a gift. Dear Christian, this morning, rejoice in the grace and mercy of God. And then love and worship Him in response. 
the fruit of our justification is indeed what is born in our lives. Love Him. Love and care for your neighbor, their soul, and their needs. Unbeliever, be warned. I do believe through my call this morning, God can, through His Spirit, awaken your heart and grant you the gift of repentance and faith and that you can, for the first time, believe in Christ. So this is my call to you. Believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. Now there's another note, another commentary that John gives us regarding belief in our passage And that is the subject of our second point. There is a secret belief of those who fear men rather than God. There is a secret belief of those who fear men rather than God. Notice the contradictory language here in verse 42. Nevertheless, in other words, not only are there those that do not believe and cannot believe, there are some who do believe. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. It is not that none have believed. It's not that there wasn't a remnant, as we call them, in and amongst the Jews, a a portion of the Jewish people who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And we've seen that belief expressed um, through the disciples and through others as well. But here particularly... John zooms in on those who are of the religious leaders. We see hope here in the form of the authorities who did believe in him. It is not the only people of the uh, the crowd, but, but these are the authorities. It speaks of many, even of the authorities, believed in him. There were those who believed. There was a remnant. Even some of the authorities believed in him. At the same time that there is reason to rejoice in these who have believed, there is also a condemnation of their hidden belief. There is also a calling out of their hidden belief. Now, before we are quick to think that these may not be true believers, or at least weak believers, are we not all tempted by this? Are are we not all tempted by The glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. As Carson says, quote, Almost certainly the evangelist knew of Jews and proselytes in his day who were happy enough to believe in Jesus in some sense, but who displayed similar hesitations. He wants them to know such secret faith will not do. The point is, as we even think about these religious leaders, what is their their fear if they profess faith in God? Jesus, their fear is that the Pharisees would put them out of the synagogue. Now pause for a moment and think about the way of life for a Jewish person. It revolved around the synagogue. Their their family was tied to a particular synagogue. A synagogue was kind of an outpost of the temple in a certain region or a certain town. And, and, and everything that they are is wrapped up in this. We, we live very dichotomized and, 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 and separated lives. We have our church life, our home life, our work life. I mean, we, we, we kind of live in this sort of way in many ways. And we need to stop that, by the way. But for them, it's all in one, all inclusive. It, it reminds me of the time, and, and you, some of you have heard this story before, that I was sitting down and listening to the testimony of two Sikh girls 
Sikhism. If you're not familiar with that, look it up. And they were nominally Sikh. And yet, the fear for them of trusting the gospel, which they had heard, the fear for them was that we, we will lose our family if we believe in Jesus. Of course, the hope is being adopted into the family of God. And as we look about this room, perhaps some of you even know that this is the only family you have because your family has rejected you because you have trusted Christ. There is another family. The point, though, for us this morning is that there are times when we struggle with this as well. Let's be honest. It does not mean we are not in Christ. It simply means that in that moment we are more fearful of men than God. I do struggle with this, and I would guess that many of you do as well. Fear of man is putting the desire for mankind to respect or accept you over the idea that your life is defined by God and who He says you are and that your life is a reflection of dedication to His glory and not receiving the glory of men. Now, Jesus talks about this in a general sense uh, about the religious leaders in Matthew chapter uh, 6 when He talks about uh, right before He gives us the Lord's Prayer. He says, don't let your prayer or your giving be done before the sight of men so that they might applaud you for it, I'm paraphrasing, that, that you might receive a pat on the back for a nice prayer given or, or, or alms given in a certain way. He says that religious leaders love to proclaim this outwardly in the square so that they might receive the praise of men. And what does Jesus say? They have gotten their full reward. What is it? The praise of men. They got it. He says, rather pray in secret so that your Father who knows your heart might reward you. Fear of man is a real struggle. Fear of man, fear of rejection, fear of even being harmed for faith in Christ is a real struggle. For the believer, the challenge is that we are more interested in the glory of God than that of men. As we saw last week, this is what Jesus was interested in. Look above at verses uh, verses 27 and the beginning of verse 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus, of course, is... In, in some sense, we have to understand, is perfectly struggling in his humanity, knowing what is set before him, the cross. He does not sin in this in any way, but shows forth the struggle of what tremendous grief and pain and suffering he will receive at the cross. And yet, at the same time that he says... My soul is troubled. What else does he say? This is the purpose for which I have come. Father, glorify your name. It is for the glory of the triune God that he goes to the cross. And for us as sinners, as those who struggle with wanting to be accepted and be received and and, and to have the accolades of men, 
We must. We 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 must um, think and pray and ask the Lord to give us the resolve to fear Him rather than men. It's a struggle, isn't it? Dear believer, we are in a time, and, and, and it seems at this point that it's only going to worsen. We are in a time where standing up for Christ is of utmost importance. Now, look, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. I am not concerned about the gospel fizzling out or the church fizzling out, but I am concerned that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would take a stand in a time where it seems really easy to just let things kind of just roll off our back and not worry about the way that the world perceives us. Dear ones, the call is to live in such a way that even if they think you evildoers, Peter says, they will glorify not you, but God on the day of His visitation. What does James say? Our life is but a vapor. We're just a mist. What do we do? We serve God in such a way that His truth will be remembered and we are forgotten. And a hundred years from now, nobody's going to know who Jason Allegood is, except for perhaps his family. And a hundred years from now, people will know the name Jesus Christ still. And it's his glory that we must promote. For the one who is not trusted in Christ, the fear of man may be all that you are concerned with. Or perhaps you fear God, but you don't know what to do to get out from under the fear of condemnation. Perhaps you're concerned, if I believe the gospel, my family will reject me. My friends will reject me. My neighbors will mock me. My workplace people will, uh, will, will spend time making fun of me. Or perhaps your fear of God is the kind that says, I am under the wrath of God and I need some way out from underneath that. In both cases, it's the same answer. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. That's my call to you. And it is the indiscriminate call that I make to you now that Jesus gives in a final plea to those in His presence as we see in our third point. There is a call to understand what belief in Jesus really means in verses 45 through 50. Here we see the balance of the election of God and the indiscriminate call of the gospel. In other words, there's two kinds of calls. There's the internal call. The way in which Jesus describes this in John chapter 6 is that the Father draws people to Him through Jesus. And then He gives those people to Jesus. That's the inward call. The outward call is an indiscriminate call. It's the call that Jesus makes here in these verses that I make to you today. I cannot peer into your hearts. I cannot see whether or not you are one who, who God is drawing by His Holy Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. All I can do is make the indiscriminate call to you to repent and believe. 
Jesus says, any that come to him are those who are drawn by the Father. This same Jesus also calls for belief once again. Look at verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to, the, uh, to judge the world, but to save the world. The, ones who reject me and, uh, the one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this, that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Last words of Jesus publicly before he goes to instruct his men about his death in the Gospel of John are these. Believe in me is what he says. And in the midst of this, we see Jesus focusing on his oneness with the Father he is also reminding them of the things he's already described about himself. Notice all the, the ways in which this is a summation of what we have studied in the Gospel of John concerning Jesus. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. Uh, he, he, he says uh, about hearing his word that he is uh, not the one to judge at this time. It is a judgment that comes later, but he's, they are judged based upon his words. So his words are judgment, but right now they're a call to belief. And they are judgment at the end for those who reject. And once again he says, he says this summarily, I and the Father are one. To believe in me is to believe in God. Think about Acts chapter 2. I know I go to that often, but it's such a revolutionary moment in the history of salvation what is the, the, the message of Peter essentially in Acts chapter 2? It is, you have killed the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. That's his message in, in brief. And what is their response? They are cut to the heart and say, what must we do to be saved? What must we do? He tells them to repent and believe the gospel and to be baptized as a symbolic of that and to receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus takes his earthly ministry, wraps it up in the language of belief and in the language of his eternal relation to the Father. Chrysostom, the great church father, says, Seest thou how everywhere he showeth himself connected with him who begat him, and that there is no separation. He says, I have come because the Father has sent me, and here is the message he sent me to say. It is eternal life. Believe in me. Believe in me. Of course, we know at this turning point, it now turns to the cross. And that's where it's leading. Once again, quoting from Carson, 
He says, thus faith in Jesus is not faith in a merely human agent, one more prophet, but faith in God, mediated by God's supreme self-disclosure, the Word incarnate, the God-man, His unique Son, or else it is not faith at all. And so closely is the Son, the Word, identified with the Father, that to see Jesus is to see the Father who sent Him, as Jesus says in John 14 and verse 9. End quote. Here is the final plea from Jesus and John to the crowds. Believe in Him. Believe in Him. There's a twofold application for those of us who are in Christ. This is the message that we believe and stand on. It is also the message we proclaim. We look to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith and we point people to Jesus as the only means by which mankind is reconciled to God. Are you living each day like this is true? Are you and I living in fear of man with a, a secretive faith or are we living out loud with fear of God and desire for His glory? The time has now come where we must be bold in our faith and not shrink back. What can mankind do to us? Jesus says, fear Him who can kill body and soul rather than those who can merely kill the body. We know that we will be in His presence if things get so far that we must lose our life for the sake of Christ. But what about the everyday occurrences of temptation to not claim Christ? Dear believer, be bold and come alongside of one another and encourage each other in this boldness. Now is the time for that boldness. For those who have not trusted Christ, there are those who even saw Jesus in his days on earth who did not believe in him and refused to see his glory. You may think, if I could just see, I would believe. There is no guarantee that this would be the thing that would do it for you. No. Hearing today, you must believe. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. If you have questions about any of these things, after we sing our hymn this morning, I'm going to ask Pastor Steve to be available up here at the end of our time. Would you pray with me before we sing? Lord, I pray for those of us who are in Christ that we would fear you and desire your glory above fearing man and desiring the accolades of men. Lord, we have believed the gospel and we believe that we have been reconciled to the triune God by the plan of the triune God that you would come, Lord Jesus, and you would live a life that we could not live, a perfect life, that you would die a death that we deserved, you died that in our place, that you rose again, perfecting our resurrection in the future, and that you ascended on high, Lord, and we wait for you even as you are our mediator, even as we look to you as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Lord, may we see your glory as the center of all things and the end of all things, including the way in which we live our lives every single day. Convict hearts, I pray, Lord, if we are, if we are shrinking back from proclaiming you, convict in our hearts today, not because of any sense that we think we're going to 
be out of favor with you, but because we are in favor with you because of what Christ has done, that we would be bold as we think about standing on the foundation of the finished work of Christ, that we might proclaim that to others. Please, Lord, convict us and then comfort us. But I pray in the hearts of those who do not know you that you would not, as as us Lewis Johnson prayed about this passage, that you would not let them rest until they find final rest in you. Lord Jesus, would you awaken hearts this morning in our midst who do not know you? Would you give them the gift of repentance and faith that they might believe the gospel? I pray that we might come alongside of our brothers and sisters and encourage them in these things as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.